0: My name is John Ryan. Super excited to be with you today. Corey is sick as a dog. I think he's walking around this place. He tells me he's not contagious. I don't believe him. Um, But if you know anything about pastors that love to shepherd the body through the Word of God, you know that him not being up here preaching on a day when they're talking about the vision of the church, he is sick. And so I've known Corey for a while. Super glad to be here. Um, Known heights before it started. I knew Corey before they started Heights Church. I actually met Corey in the fall of 2012. And if you've ever wondered, what did Corey look like in 2012? I happen to have a picture for for you from his assessment. I want you to see this picture here. Pulled it straight off his assessment. Yes, maybe. Coming? Slow? Maybe. No. We're working on it. So do what? Technical difficulties. Technical difficulties. You're going to have to see this because we can't go anywhere until you do. But here's what I want you to know. When it comes up, I'll know, I met Corey in this assessment with three other guys that, that most of you know, some of them. Tim Gray's a pastor in this area that's been here teaching and, and uh, actually preaching here. Another guy named Mark Sigma, who is a pastor I get to work with at a place called um, Matthias Lot Church over in St. Charles, and another guy named Mike Hubbard. Um, and all three of those guys, and including myself, are still pastoring this area. And So we got to, as part of Acts 29 Church Planning Network, assess pastors as they're trying to be a part of Acts 29 to plant churches. And we got to meet with Corey and his wife that day. And when I met Corey, who I met was a very young, passionate, spirit-filled guy who I believed absolutely could plant a church, but I also believed he was equally capable of ruining his marriage. And so, and and I I don't say that as a joke, I'm like serious as a dog, because when we sat with him, there was this obvious passion for the bride of Christ that was greater than the passion for his own bride. Now, they'd only been married two years, and so you know, you got to understand at that point just where people are. But at the same time, I'd sat with a lot of young guys before and and had seen them build a church with a lot of fire and then use that same fire to burn their marriage down. And so in our assessment, we, we actually passed him to the plan a church, but we gave him a couple of conditions. And here's one straight off that assessment. It said, develop a plan to more consistently and passionately shepherd the heart of your wife. Eleven years later, what I can tell you that I know about Corey is this, is that that through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the Gospel of God is proven faithful, and has changed not only his his passion for his for the Bride of Christ, but has changed his passion for his own Bride. And in such a way that I believe this: what he started with last week in this whole series is that the Gospel is faithful, that the Gospel of God through the Spirit of God actually not just is the energy and power of God to save us, but it is the power of God that sanctifies us. It is the power of God that redeems us and it is the power of God that restores us. And the same power that gave Corey a a passion to plant this church is even a greater God who cares about his wife. And it's the gospel that proves faithful in small places, but also big places like our marriage. When we doubt this, let me say it really clearly. When we doubt that the gospel of Jesus Christ is less than the things that we are facing in front of us, we functionally start to, to do things that keep us from praying for the power of God, believing in the power of God, actually acting on the power of God in faith and stepping into places that God's calling us. And I will say this, for most of you in this room, me included, all, most of our sin is based on this. We stop believing the gospel of God is faithful and powerful enough. And so we move into our own agenda, our own ways, and we stop trusting God and we step into our own throne for lack of a better way of saying it. Let me ask you this question as we get started. Where do you see a desperate need for the gospel in your own life, but you doubt the power of the gospel? Like in your own personal life, maybe there's some sin you just can't seem to get past, but, but, Something about who God is and what he is maybe is making you doubt that you'll ever be able to have victory in this area. What's going on in your own life um, that allows you, as you pray for maybe a child or a friend, to really doubt that much will ever change in their life? What's going on in the middle of this church, 10 years and the God birthing a a place where lives are being changed that you look at right now and you think, God's doing so much, but I wonder if, if this will ever be different. Let me ask it in a more specific way Where does the darkness of this world functionally prove greater in your heart than the gospel? Because we will say with our mouth, we're just saying songs, we just sang, He came out of the grave. And ran off darkness. And we'll sing those songs and then yet at times look at things that are going on in our life and believe that thing right there is greater than the resurrection power of Jesus. And we would never say it with our mouth, but we functionally live it in our heart as we stop praying, as we stop acting, as we stop trusting. Let me ask you the question again. Where where in, in your heart do you functionally believe the darkness of this world is greater than the gospel? Of Jesus Christ, His resurrection power, the power that He gives us through Christ. Been praying for this day that Lord would show us, maybe for the first time, that the gospel is faithful, or maybe for the hundredth time, that the gospel is faithful. I've been praying for this day that God would actually grow like the Grinch your heart three sizes to trust Him deeper and broader in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God would do something in our hearts today, not just to inspire us, but. Because here's the truth we don't need more inspiration, we need more revelation. You don't need somebody firing you up for a moment. You need to see a greater Jesus. And if Jesus is greater than the things that we are confronted with in the darkness of this world somehow get smaller because here's the truth He is greater than the darkness of this world. The problem with us is we see a small Jesus and we see great darkness. And so I've been praying today that the vision of Jesus would grow in your heart. As much as we talk about vision in this place and we talk about vision in churches, Corey and I and David and all the pastors in this place are on the same page on this. What the church, the body of Christ, doesn't need is more men visions. They just need a greater vision of Jesus. Most of the visions of pastors just weigh people down. A greater vision of Jesus gives life. So that's my prayer for us this morning. We'd see a greater vision of Jesus as we step into this day. And here's kind of the, the truth we're going to be anchoring. And the gospel is faithful. Whether we believe it or not, the gospel is faithful. But God, every once in a while, through various things that he does in us, proves that to us. And one of the most impactful ways he proves the faithfulness of the gospel is as he invites us into making disciples. And you and I trust him in that and step into that. And that's not just about seeing people come to Christ. It's about walking with people in their journey to grow in Christ. And it's a command to all of us. Matthew 28, 19, he says, go make disciples. That's not just two pastors. It's not just to people that are working FCA or working in crew in the middle of high schools or colleges. It's not just to some who are young. It's to everyone who's a follower of Christ. And When you and I don't take him up on that command, we miss out on one of the most fertile places that God wants to show us that the gospel is faithful over and over and over again. And we're going to see that today. So let's step into this. A little reminder of where we were last week. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 11. This is verse 19. We'll step into this, this passage together. Hey, we're back. I promise I'll show you this picture of Corey later. We'll get back to it. You got to see it. Verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. There had been one of their friends murdered. And in that murdering of their friend, then, then great persecution came on the church. I mean, people were being thrown in jail. People were being uh, beaten Other people were being killed. And so in the midst of great suffering, the church scatters. But then some of these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to Hellenists. In other words, they were speaking to people that just weren't Jews, others that were outside of the Jewish race and faith, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And in verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. What was going on is... Corey walked us, walked you guys through last week, was that despite an unwelcoming culture, and the midst of suffering, the gospel proved faithful, and many came to Christ in ways that had never happened before. I mean, if, if you remember, as he, as he walked through what Antioch was like, this was a place of incredible idolatry, of incredible darkness, of incredible um, materialism, and incredible sensuality and sexuality, and a very deep, dark, segregated world by Christ culture, economy, and race. And in the middle of that unwelcoming, inhospitable, cultural melu, the gospel proves faithful. And in the middle of their own suffering, these disciples see other disciples being made. And in that place, God shows himself as greater than. Sounds a lot like the place we live in today, yes? And so here's where we jump into today, verse 22. It says, the report of this thing came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, so before he gets there, let me ask you a question. What do you think is going on in Barnabas' mind? And they come, it gets back to the church in Jerusalem. Listen, in Antioch, this city of, of all of these different cultures and all of these people who don't follow God, the gospel has taken root and people are coming to faith. And so the apostles in the early church get together and they say, let's send someone down there to check this out. And if it's true, to start discipling them. And so they pick Barnabas. Why do they pick Barnabas? Man, his name means son of encouragement. That's what he was known by. I don't know that his name exactly meant that near as much as that was he was known as. His, his name is Barnabas. He was known as the son of encouragement. And we're going to see this in a minute. That means to, to come alongside, to call people alongside you and to walk with them, and to literally pour into them courage through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he was known as and that's what he had done his whole life. And so he said, this is the guy we need to send to this place. We first meet Barnabas in Acts chapter four when he's laying a messload of money at the apostles' feet. For the first time, the church is coming together to give to those in need. We see him in Acts chapter 9, actually bringing Paul, who was Saul, into the midst of the disciples. This guy who had killed Stephen, now is coming to Christ, and he comes to the apostles in Jerusalem a little bit later, and no one wants to see him. Understandable, right? And so Barnabas finds him and takes him into the the disciples and lets him, he speaks for them, encouraging the apostles and Saul that they need to work together. And this is the guy who then comes to Antioch. Now, again, I'll ask you this question. What do you think's going on in Barnabas' mind as he's making this trip? I'm sure there's some excitement and some hope. This is the first time this has ever happened. Like, it's hard for us to even get our hands around this. I mean, we hear about revivals, we hear about things breaking out. This wasn't just a revival. This is the first time a mass number of people who weren't Jews had responded to the gospel and started following Jesus. All of the gospel outbreaks that had happened had always been with Jews all over the place. There had been individual moments where those that weren't Jews came to faith in Christ, but this was the first time that preaching to those who weren't Jews had become a thing, and then the first time a whole messload of people had actually responded to the gospel. So I'm sure there was some excitement. He's starting to remember hey, at the beginning of Acts, he had told us that we were going to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Maybe this is the beginning of that. Let's go. And I'm sure he was fired up on his way there, but I'm sure he was also a little bit anxious and afraid because he was stepping into a culture that was super segregated, super against anything like this happening super sexually hyper, dark, materialistic, and he's walking into this going, how is the church ever gonna come together? How is this new church ever gonna survive? How is this ever gonna work? And I'll ask you the question again, where are there places in your life where the darkness of the world seems greater than the faithfulness of the gospel? Because I guarantee you on his way there, Barnabas was thinking, man, God, can, can you do this? Not just can you save people, but can you make them one? See, the issue of the church today and this, this issue here, listen, it isn't whether God can save individual lives. It's can he take those lives and make you one? Because it's, it's not a big deal to gather a bunch of people and set them in chairs across this room because you get somebody up here that can talk well enough, good enough, man, people will show up. But an individual can't bring unity to a room. An individual can't cross cultural lines and racial lines and economic lines and gender lines. Because this is going to be the first time that the body of Christ would actually gather everybody in one room and say, you're all equals, whether race, culture, or gender. Never before, ladies, you need to hear this, never before had the body of Christ allowed women to be in the same place where worship was taking place. In the Jewish community, there was, there was a, in the synagogue, there was a, a court of women's that was outside. In the temple, there was a court for women outside where the men gathered. You weren't allowed in the same places by penalty of death where the men gathered. And the body of Christ was the first place that said, doesn't matter your race, there was another sign. Not only women weren't allowed, but if you weren't a Jew, you weren't allowed in this place. So your race and your gender got you killed if you came into this place where the men were gathering. The followers of Christ were the first people to let all races and all genders into the same place to worship God, which is, yay, awesome, but also a mess, as you guys know from your personal lives. And it's a mess because of the darkness of our hearts, not because getting all those races together is a mess, because one day we're going to stand in heaven, and it says every tribe and every tongue and every nation will be one. And so it's not the racial makeup that God made us that's the mess. It's our own evil hearts that doesn't know how to live in unity together. And I'm sure he came with a little bit of this anxiety. Verse 23 says that when he came and saw the grace of God, the first thing that God starts to do in the middle of Barnabas' his heart was allow him to see that the gospel is faithful. In the book of John, verse, chapter 1, verse 17, it says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. Whenever you see, almost every time you see the grace of God in the scripture, it is a synonym for the gospel of God. Because the gospel of God is God's grace being poured out on us. God's movement towards us, God's gift towards us, God's favor towards us, given to us through the person of Christ being poured out on us. And so the grace of God is the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the grace of God. And what God showed Barnabas was the grace of God was at work. The gospel of God was really changing lives. People were really getting saved. And then there was a response. And it says, to this grace of God, he was glad. Now, let me speak to all the introverts in the room for a second. I hate segregating people out like this, but in general, there's people that love being, love being in parties, and you get energy from crowds, and there's those of you that, like, you had to do everything you could to, like, work up your source of inner power in Christ to get into this room with this many people. And, and that's an extreme exaggeration, but let me say this. Liking people is not about introvert, extrovert. That's a Jesus thing going on in your heart. Right, so if you're an introvert and you don't like people, that's called sin. If you're an extrovert and you don't like people, that's called sin. All it does is say where you, where you grab energy from. And from crowds, extroverts love that. Introverts love it with being in the closet. Can I say this about your emotions though? The glad piece. Hear this. My wife had to tell me about a year under, two years into our marriage. She said, "John, you need to let your face know what's going on in your heart." Because I had this issue of getting really excited in here, but not letting it come out here. And so she said, I have no idea when I give you gifts or when I do things, what, what's going on inside? Do you. Like, do you like this? Do you hate this? Because I have no idea. Now, she had known me well enough to know some of that. But she said, it's not just about me. You're going to have kids someday, and they're going to give you a gift. And you're going to look at your kid's gift and go, this is awesome, thanks. And they're going to think, Dad hates me. And so every time my kids gave me a gift all through Christmas, she would look at me and say, hey. Let your face know what's going on inside your heart. Like it was just our little joke. And to this day, I've learned this. Listen, my heart gets stirred by things. I get excited. Personality-wise, it doesn't always come out here like it does on some of you. But this word, glad, means this. Barnabas' heart got stirred, and it led to a response this way, which is called celebration. Now, one of the things that I know about us as followers of Christ is it doesn't matter who you are, you love to celebrate certain things, whether that's your team, or that's someone you love, or that's getting a promotion, or that what I I don't care what it is, somewhere in this world, I promise you, you've raised your voice before in excitement. You've looked like an idiot in front of your own TV because your team did great. Or you were throwing things at your TV because your team didn't do well. Yet those same people will walk into church and go, Oh, I don't show any emotion before God. You're a liar. You show emotion before God. You just do it for different things. Being glad was a a visceral response to what he saw in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he celebrated that. And you need to hear this for those of you that are called to make disciples, which again is all of us. One of the main ways God allows us to believe in the faithfulness faithfulness of God in his gospel is as we live in celebration and thanksgiving over and over and over like he tells us to. Let me say it this way, because what happens right after this was then this. He begins to exhort them all to remain faithful to the Lord and with steadfast purpose. He begins to pour into them the things of Christ through the word of God and the spirit of God. Let me say it this way about discipleship that God's inviting us into. When you and I live in discipleship, when we begin to... To pour into other people's lives, when we begin to get poured into, when we put ourselves in relationships where we can be a part of being a disciple and living as a disciple, God begins to do something. It includes robust gospel teaching in our lives where we get exhorted to remain faithful with a steadfast purpose. But there's a second thing that happens is that you and I get the opportunity to live in the middle of thanksgiving with other people as we see God doing his work in the middle of our life and their lives. Now, there's so many things that go on in discipleship, but I want to give you two that this morning, really three this morning, but these first two that allow us to see the faithfulness of God constantly in front of our eyes. When we are living in the middle of robust gospel teaching, it calls us to live in the truths of the gospel. First and foremost, it calls us to live in the truths of the gospel. What do I mean by that? It means this. Whenever you read the Bible and it says something like, love your neighbor." now how do you do that when your neighbor's not lovely how do you do that when you're not feeling it how do you do that when the last neighbor you loved bit your head off how do you do that when the culture around you is not hospitable and you're suffering sounds like our friends here right so listen it's it's not the commands of god that stir our heart to see that the gospel is faithful It's the work of God and the obedience of God towards us that stirs our heart to see that the gospel is faithful and also empowers our hearts to live out that faithfulness. So I love my neighbor who's not lovely because God loves me who's not lovely. And that same God lives in me now, and he wants to live through me in the middle of my neighbor's lives. And functionally, I have to get out of his way and let the Spirit of God who loves my unlovely neighbor love through me. Yes, I have to show up. Yes, I have to walk across the street. But loving my neighbor isn't a matter of keeping the command. It's a matter of me submitting to the God who loves me the way that he wants to love my neighbor. And submitting to that power that's at work within me that not only saved me, but is changing my heart to actually want to love my neighbor. So gospel teaching reminds us, listen, you cannot love your neighbor without the power of God and the spirit of God working in you. And as he starts to do that, we celebrate together. Hey, I tell my friends, man, my neighbor across the street, and this is a true story, my neighbor actually next door to me, man, she's crazy, but you know what? She let me bring her cookies the other day for the first time. And we had a conversation about the things, why people give gifts to each other. And I got to talk to her about why I give gifts, because I want people to know an extravagant God who's given me so much. And we got to have a conversation. And I got to be thankful with the guy that I'm discipling. And he encouraged me while I was encouraging him. And we got to pray for my neighbor, Amy. What I know about most of us is that when the scripture says, be thankful at all times, like always be thankful, that we struggle being thankful. We can grumble at all times, but we have a really hard time being thankful at all times. And one of the reasons we don't believe the gospel is faithful in the darkest moments is because we're really good at seeing darkness more than we are seeing the gospel at work. And this is what I'm urging you with and pleading with you about. As you are discipling people, as you are being discipled, one of the things we have to do is anchor ourselves in robust gospel teaching while at the same time learning to celebrate and be thankful for what he's doing in our lives and through our lives. So practically, what does that look like? It means this, when you're having a baptism in this place and you guys are throwing a party for the people's lives that are being, being evidence of change as we baptize people, man, that's a celebration. Are you more excited about baptism that's happening that day or the football game that's coming on later on? And I'm, just wanted, I'm not trying to shame you, I'm just saying this. The reason we get more excited about a football game than we do a baptism is because we fail to remember that the gospel actually changes people's lives. And we're not telling the stories of that enough. In your missional communities, are you telling the stories of God's faithfulness in your life through the gospel? Part of the reason we don't tell enough stories is because there's not enough of us confessing sin. And if you're not confessing sin and walking in repentance, there's not many stories to tell, is there? And so when it's testimony time, we're all looking at each other like, hey, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Until somebody goes, "Uh, man, I've been angry for a long time. My kids have been living in the fruit of that. And, and this is how God's been confronting my anger and redeeming my anger. And this is this is a moment of beauty that God's done and beginning to restore the damage that I've caused. And man, when someone shares that story, listen, man, there is celebrating going on in that room. And what happens is somebody sitting over on the side listening to this goes, maybe God is powerful enough to change us. If he can change, man, I know that guy. He's an angry dude. If God can change him, then maybe there's hope for me. And when we start telling stories of thankfulness and celebration, we start to believe again the gospel is faithful. The question to you is, aren't we telling more stories? Where do you tell those stories? Where do you hear those stories? And I'll ask the question again, where is the darkness of this world greater for you? Where do you see Happening. I, I sat down with a pastor from India about five years ago, about 10 years ago actually, and and he uh, was telling us about planting 60 churches in six years, these house churches where he lived. He lives in the far northwest part of India up near Pakistan, which is super persecuted area of India. South India. A lot like England, they call it, they call it a, a much more peaceful place. But you get up in the northwest part of India, and it's, it's very difficult to be a Christian there. Pretty much you've got to keep your head down. Everything's got to be small, so you don't have churches of 150. You have house churches everywhere. And this guy had planted 60 house churches in the last six years, and a little bit cynical on our part. We start to listen to this guy as we're spending a week with him, these guys that they were with, and when he starts telling us about all 60 of these names of people that he sent out to plant these house churches, and I start to realize he knows these people. He knows these guys. These are people he's invested a lot of time with, couples, husbands, wives, and and so after about three or four days, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm like, man, I want to learn from this guy. I'm a church planter. I want to help plant more churches. And so I sit down with him one day, three of us, and we're like, man, tell us about how you plant 60 churches in, in six years. And what, man, what's, teach us. And so I grab my, my iPad, my notepad. I'm like, let's go. And he looks at me. He says this. We make disciples. I said, okay. I'll write that down. We make disciples. <laughs> so what else? He said, We make disciples. It's like, okay. And the conviction at that moment was overwhelming because hear this. We want there to be something else. We want there to be something else that's going to overcome the darkness of this world. We want there to be something else that's going to actually change my heart. We want there to be something else that's actually going to move people out of their comfort zone to lay aside their personal preferences and protecting themselves and cause them to step out into a place where they might risk persecution and suffering. We want there to be something else. We want there to be some kind of good inspiration. And the reality is it's just more revelation of who Jesus is that changes hearts, makes disciples, and sends them out. But I always wanted it to be something else. What do you want it to be? And I'll ask the question again what is it out here in this world that seems so dark that the gospel can't overcome it? Verse 24 it says this about our friend Barnabas, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It doesn't mean he was superstar, it just means this. He was learning to submit himself to the Spirit of God. And the fruit that came from this was, as he taught, was a whole bunch more people came to Christ. Now he's in a real pickle because he went there and there was a lot of new believers. Now there's more. And Barnabas is like, man, what am I going to do? And so he says, I got an idea. I'm going to go find Paul, my friend. So he travels up to Tarsus. And I love the way the scripture says this. So in verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He didn't text him because you couldn't do that. He didn't call him because that's not possible. He didn't send him an email. He didn't, say, didn't set up a Zoom call and say, hey, I need you to come down here and help me out. It just says this. He went to look for him, travels 150 miles one way, shows up in the town and goes looking for his friend. Hey, have you seen Saul? Used to be known Saul, called Paul now. Used to kill people, doesn't kill him anymore. Have you seen him? He's a friend of mine. People are like, what? What in the world? One of, one of the evidences for me as, I, as a pastor and as a friend of people growing in Christ that I get to see in people's lives of the gospel's faithfulness is when people are willing to step out of their comfort zones. Man, I mean, traveling 150 miles by foot, by donkey, I don't know how he got there, no planes, trains, automobiles, but he had to get there stepping out of your comfort zone. Going and bringing back a guy, he he knew this much to help disciple him, but he believed the Spirit sent him there to get Paul. I'm going to bring him back, listen, out of my comfort zone. But when I see people stepping out of a place of self-protection, self-preservation of what Corey shared last week, and stepping into places of risk by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, because the Word of God's encouraging it, I start to see the faithfulness of the gospel in those people's lives, changing them to lay down other commitments, other things that they hold more valuable, comforts that they believe are more needed, and they're stepping into places that God's calling them and I st- I see the faithfulness of the gospel at work in those people's lives. Verse 26. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Notice what God does. For a year, they met and they taught. More robust gospel teachings, walking together in the life of the word. The, the word exhort that it says that Barnabas did up in the, in the verses before that means literally to come alongside, to walk with, to pour into the things of Christ. That's what discipleship is. That's what God's calling us to. And if I could plead with you about any one thing over the next 10 years for your body, and that's this, is that you would be known as a church that makes disciples. Now, that's in everybody's vision statement. If you're a follower of Christ and you have a church you go to that's a Christian church and somewhere in your mission, vision, goals, it doesn't say make disciples, please don't go to that church. But I will say this about most of those churches. They're not making many disciples. There's some converts getting saved. There's a whole lot of spectators. There's a lot of people giving. There's some people showing up serving, but not many of those people are really diving into robust gospel teaching, doing life together, suffering together, walking together. Like God calls us to. That's what making disciples is. That's what God's called you guys to. That's how this church got planted. And all it needs is more of the same. There's not another program that's going to get this ball down the road for Heights Church. It's making disciples. So many different ways to do that. It begins right here from this platform as people teach you all the way to one-on-one DNA groups and everything that happens in between. But at some point, you have to get face-to-face with another person. You may say, well, John, you don't know me, man. I, I don't... I don't know how to do face-to-face with people. None of us do. I was 18 18 years old when I got saved. I didn't know how to talk to people. I was an 18-year-old introvert who didn't have a dad who talked to me a whole lot. had a mom who yelled at me a lot. And that doesn't make for a good recipe of learning how to talk to people. I quickly learned that I could stand behind something like this and talk at people. But that's not talking with people. That's not listening to people. Making disciples requires us to actually sit down and be with people, to come alongside. And God says, I'm going to empower all of you to be able to do that. It's going to look different. David, how he does it is going to look way different than the way Steve does it, and the way Eddie does it, and the way your friend does it, and the way this lady. I mean, it's going to be different for every one of us. But there's some things that are going to come in common. And the ones we see in the scripture of this, it's going to require robust gospel teaching. Number one, that's what they were doing. There's a second thing that's going on in this verse. It says that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What happens when you and I get into those relationships, if the gospel is at work through the spirit of God and the word of God, is that lives start to get changed. Christ likeness starts to happen discipleship that includes this gospel teaching, this this robust gospel teaching and Christ-likeness, it grows our trust in the power of God. In other words, this, I can sit with people and and disciple them, but if nothing ever changes in the people that I'm investing in, how much am I trusting in the gospel? It just feels like I'm herding cats. It just feels like I'm calling people to come and sit and listen, to to, read the Bible together. Nothing ever changes. But at some point, if you're getting to interact with people, and all of a sudden, life heart things start to change from the inside out, you and I start to trust in the power of the gospel more. And listen, Christ-likeness is one of the greatest evidences that stirs us to believe the gospel is faithful and does what it says it's going to do in people's lives. And that's what's happening in this town. This is the first place where people were identified by a likeness to Christ more than they were by their race or where they were by their culture or where they were by their social standing or by their gender. And so instead of calling them a church On the way, that's what they were known as, as Christians, was called the way, they started calling them Christians, which means of Christ, because they started identifying themselves more closely with Christ than they did with any other thing that they keep labeled with. They were like Christ, of Christ, in Christ, so much that other people started calling them this, Christians, Christians. I don't think it was a self-promo thing. I don't think they slapped a sign on the side of the church. Most historians believe they didn't give themselves this name. They believed outsiders looked at them and said, you guys are so much like Jesus, it's crazy. That's all you talk about? That's how you identify yourself now? And so whether it was a, a positive thing or a negative thing, we're not really sure, but this is the name they got stuck with because they were so like Christ. What is it? That you look at in this dark world and you just think, man, that's never going to change. For me, I, gr- I grew up in, a, in South Texas, the very bottom of Harlingen. Very bottom of Texas, a place called Harlingen, Texas. And it's the very bottom of the state. Some of you are like, oh, I've been to San Antonio. That's not the bottom. That's four and a half hours from where I grew up. I'm four and a half hours south from San Antonio where I grew up. Where Mexico and South Padre Island, the water, Gulf of Mexico and Texas all meet up. That's where I grew up. Mexico, water, Texas, there. That's the very bottom of Texas. I grew up in a town of about 40,000 people. There, were, there was, in that town of 40,000 people, 90% of the town was Hispanic. 5% of the town was a whole bunch of other things. We had Vietnamese that had landed uh, from the Vietnam War that had come to, to the shores, and we had Vietnamese and African Americans, all sorts of people, and then we had 5% white. I was what was called a medio raza. I was a half-breed. I have a very Hispanic dad and a very white mom. Most of my most of my appearance now looks white because I have no hair. If you'd have seen me when I was a kid, I had a lot of dark hair. And when I was around my brother and sister and when I was younger and I was out in the sun all the time, very, very much looked very much Hispanic. But I'm still pretty white. But I grew up a half-breed, which meant this. My dad got phone calls all the time from white parents and Hispanic parents saying, Keep your son away from my daughters. I, that sucked. If I can just be honest with you, because it didn't matter which side there weren't, you know, I didn't know who the half breeds were. So it's hard to date them. It's hard to like them. And I grew up in a town. I want you to hear the other part of this. I grew up in a town where 90% of the town was Hispanic, 5% was white, but every power position in the town was run by the white people. In other words, if you were a teacher, you were white. If you were a coach, you were white. If you were a cop, you were white. If you ran the hospital, you were white. 90% of the town was Hispanic, 5% white. All the white people ran the town. 1982, I think some of that's changed a little bit in our last 45 years, but this is what I know. When I see race divide us as a people, it makes my heart believe that the darkness of this world is a little bit greater than the power of Christ. That's that's one of mine. What's yours? Where do you see the evil in this world and the darkness of this world, and it makes you doubt that Jesus is actually greater than the darkness of this world? Where are you seeking more than the gospel of God by the spirit of God to overcome the darkness of the world around you? Because this is where it goes. When, When you and I get stuck staring at the darkness and we get overwhelmed and we get hurt by it or our friends get hurt by it or our family gets hurt by it or we just are overcome because our friends can't get out of their sin, whatever it is, where do you go? One of the places we go is inspirational thoughts. I've said this to you three times today. You don't need more inspiration. You need more revelation. But some of you are convinced that if you scroll long enough on social media that you'll find some meme that'll actually fire you up for the day, that'll actually make you believe that you can go out and make it today, that you can actually love your kids, feed your dogs, pay the house bills. And what I'm going to tell you is that there's, there's not a meme out there that's going to let, let you believe that what you have in front of you is greater than the things that are super dark. Put your phone down for a minute. Stop streaming for inspiration and open the word and start looking at the revelation God's given you for how great Jesus is. Where else do you go? Maybe it's entertainment or sin that numbs us to the comfort God has for us. We can all agree that not all entertainment is sin, but some entertainment is sin. So for example, porn is sin. There's nothing redeeming in it. But not every movie you watch out there is sinful. May watch. I don't know. But if you're fantasizing about somebody else's daughter, men, can I just look at you for a second? I'm a 59-year-old man. When you're fantasizing about my 24-year-old daughter, that's sin. And some of us go there because we don't believe the comfort of the gospel is greater than the comfort that we get in our fantasy moments. We don't believe that the name of the Holy Spirit, which by the way, is the comforter, is greater that He has for us than the comfort we're going to find in numbing ourselves for a few minutes. And the reason we go to numb ourselves, hear this, understand it, because the darkness of the world hurts. And if it hurts bad enough, we want to go to numb. Those of you who are a little more self-righteous, you won't do that. What you'll do is try to invent another program instead of just making disciples. And so you'll, you'll want to find another vision. you'll want to find another book to read. About the things of Jesus, which aren't bad. But have you ever noticed how when we find a new book about the things of Jesus, we like want to give that to people? Man, you need to read this. This is an awesome book. This will change your life. How many of you ever done that with a Bible with somebody? Hey, this is an awesome book. This will change your life. And we give away other people's books all the time, don't we? Like, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not. I'm not down on that. But you know how I read those books. I read them and I'll get to scripture and I'll just skim the scripture and get back to what the guy's saying because I want to see what he's saying about the scripture, which is dumb. (laughs) You don't need another program. You don't need another church. You don't need another vision. Jesus is enough. The person of the gospel and the power of the gospel, which is Jesus, is enough for the darkness of this world. Matthew 25 27 verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land. It's not just a metaphor of what was going on. There was actually darkness being heaped on our Savior. And the evil of your sin and my sin was being heaped on him. And in that moment he felt everything you and I feel when we experience sin. Shame, guilt, wanting to hide, wanting to run, being angry, being sad, being despairing trying to blame other people, all of those things as they fell on Jesus, as all the sin of the world fell on Jesus. He felt all the things you and I feel when we're in the middle of our sin and it was dark all over the land. Also because God was punishing him now for our sin. And it says that darkness fell over the land. Jesus cries out with a loud voice and his language, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me to this place of punishment? And this is why God did John 1, 4 says, "In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The only way the darkness was going to be put out is if the light was greater. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Jesus said this to disciples, I say these things to you, that in me you may have peace, because in this world it is going to hurt. That's what the word tribulation means. That things are going to pound on you, and they're going to hurt. And some of them are going to be inside hurts, some of them are going to be outside hurts. Sometimes your body's going to hurt. Sometimes your heart's going to hurt. Sometimes it's going to hurt because people hate you. Sometimes it's going to hurt because people hate me, Jesus was saying. But at the end of the day, know this. In this world, you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. Take heart. I've overcome the world. And when Jesus was on that cross in the darkness of the world, shut it down as he died. Listen. That was not the end. And the good news today, what we celebrate is not just that Jesus died for your sins, but that he rose from the dead, conquering all of those things that make us believe the darkness of this world is greater than the resurrected Jesus. And today, what we need is to believe God is your resurrection power greater than the darkest things that come against me. Right now, we're going to pray for that. As we take communion and as as we walk into this time of communion and offering, we we as a church give in so many different ways. There's online ways you can do that. There's boxes up here in the front where you can give out as you give. It's a response of the heart. But as we take communion this morning, just let me remind you of this. Communion was never intended to be a time where you come and make vows to God. This isn't a place where you make vows. This is a place where you come here, God's vows over you. And his vows over you is this. I will never leave you and forsake you because I allowed my body to be broken for you and my blood to be spilled for you. And because of that, I'm one with you forever in Christ as you Come to me as Savior. So if you've trusted your soul to Jesus to make you right with God, this is a table for you to be reminded that the gospel is faithful, that it's enough. So God, hear our prayers. Make the gospel enough in our hearts. It is. Make us believe, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we take communion together?